Well, there we have a, uh, a video portrayal of what we studied last week from John chapter 12. And since you are all New Testament scholars, I'm sure that you quickly realize that they didn't get everything right. Like, what did you notice that they didn't quite get right? How were they seated at the table? They were sitting kind of upright, kind of like we're going to sit in about an hour or three for lunch today. Uh, And we saw last week that uh, they would recline at the table. And what's the other thing they got really badly wrong? It's amazing how white European Caucasian Jesus is in the picture. Did you notice that? He looks Dutch to me. And that's a good looking Jesus, let me tell you. Seems like we always get that wrong in our portrayals and we forget that Jesus wasn't a white man, he wasn't a black man, he was a brown man, he was a Middle Eastern man and so we typically, uh, oftentimes people will make Jesus the way that they want him to be. Um, and somebody shared with me last night and they said his feet were so clean. <laughs> I thought, I didn't think about that, but that's a good point. So, but they got a lot of it right because they were reading actually from, from John 12 and this extraordinary, extravagant generosity that Mary did uh, and gave to Jesus, an expression of her love for him. And we saw last week how those two things always go together. When we love, we are extravagant. And Mary had an extravagant love for Jesus, which led to an extravagant generosity for him as well. Now, I want to read again the text, actually, as we get into it here. And I'm going to do so from John chapter 12. Uh, We begin in verse 1. Six days before the Passover. And you'll recall that we saw that this likely happened on Saturday. Uh, The day before, he uh, gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem uh, to the cheers and the waving of palms, uh, known as his triumphal entry the next day. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. This is a town two miles outside of Jerusalem where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And we spent a couple weeks on Lazarus and this extraordinary miracle that Jesus performed in raising him from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. And we saw that this is a party, festive atmosphere. Martha served. She's doing her thing. That's what Martha did. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. And we saw last week that this was such an extraordinary uh, expression that Jesus says in the Matthew account, 
that wherever the gospel goes out and wherever people talk about me, they're going to talk about what this woman did, this gift that she gave. And we asked the question last week, what was it actually about the gift that was so extraordinary even to Christ? And we talked about what it wasn't. The first thing that it wasn't was the perfume itself. Now, you remember that it's nard, and we made the comment, not many people wearing, you know, eau de nard <laughs> these days. Uh, uh, but in that day, it was a very coveted perfume. It was like the best thing you could ever, you could ever smell. And, um, and, it, and everyone wanted it. And, but it wasn't that Jesus was like, oh, I love this fragrance. Because of this fragrance now, what you have done will be shared everywhere my gospel goes. It wasn't that. It also wasn't the value of the perfume. And when we look at this story, this is often what people will talk about because it was so extraordinarily valuable. Uh, its, its value is, is in the story is put at around a year's salary for a common worker. And so in our dollars, maybe we would say, you know, something somewhere around $50,000 is what uh, this would have been worth. 12 ounces, that's around $4,000 an ounce. That's some expensive perfume, don't you think? I'd have to say so. And so when it happens, you have uh, Mary pouring out this perfume and Judas right away weighs in with his opinion on the matter and his assessment of what's going on. And he says in that moment, what are you doing? What a waste. This could have been sold and given to the poor. And the text tells us why he was so interested in that. Was Did he have a concern for the poor? No, he had a concern for who? Himself. That's right. Uh, and, and you can almost see Judas there watching in amazement as, as Mary does this because in his way of thinking, this is an absolute waste of money to pour out. Because we said last week, what's the value of it in the flask? 50 grand. What's the value of it materialistically once it's poured out? Nothing. And Judas is looking at that and going, it's, it's worth anything now. You, you wasted it on Jesus. Why did you do this? And this way, Judas represents a certain kind of person and a certain kind of perspective of someone who is all the time calculating the worth of things based upon what it is worth financially. There's a little calculator going off in their mind all the time, calculating, calculating, calculating the worth monetarily. And so for somebody like this, anything that's given to Jesus is a complete waste. Why would you do something like that? Think of all the things that could have been done with it. But this is not, it's not the value of the perfume that Jesus admires. What Jesus is admiring in this is Mary's heart and her devotion and her sacrifice that she offered to Christ in the giving of this. That is what was noteworthy to him. And we see that, that kind of just all hearted, wholehearted devotion in her actions as well, right? She pours the oil. She takes her hair, which is so personal to women even today, their hair, and she takes this very personal part of her and she wipes his feet, his, his what should have been dirty feet. And in this way, we see a humble devotion as she wipes the oil from the feet of Christ. And we saw last week that this sacrifice likely went even further than that. When we ask the question, how did, how did Mary have this uh, valuable possession in the first place? What was that all about? And likely this was a part of her dowry. 
which was a gift that was given to a suitor uh, or a soon-to-be husband as a part of, of that marital relationship. And so for Mary, this represented for her, her dream. To be married, to have children in the first century, even more than today, although I think it's still largely true today, but even more so than it was her identity in the, in the Jewish culture that was like everything to have kids and all the rest. And so for her to give up the dowry, to pour the dowry was to pour the dream. And yet her marriage, her children, her dream were part of what she willingly gave to Christ. This was a tremendous sacrifice on her part, a great offering. But it shows the devotion of her heart and where her priorities were at and what she valued, and it produced this extravagant generosity to Christ. Now, what I want to get at today is this, that Judas and Jesus give us two very fundamentally different perspectives on what something is worth. Jesus and Judas. And I'm going to ask this question. Was the perfume worth more before or after it was poured out? Was it worth more before or after it was poured out? Now, this is a problem, I think, uh, this question, if it's actually grappled with in your heart today, uh, in our culture today, as we live in a very materialistic society, do we not? Are you living where I'm living? I'm in a Crown Point address here in northwest Indiana, Chicagoland general area. Pretty materialistic, don't you think? I'm still getting nothing from third service here. I think so. Maybe I'm stepping on your toes already. Because you're like, I know where this is going and I don't like it. Well, I ain't said nothing yet. You just hold on here. Because this is... This is the reality. From Judas's perspective, everything is calculated by what it is worth financially. The worth of something monetarily. That is what it is worth. What is true in our culture? When we say things like this, somebody dies, and we say, what was he worth? Or what was she worth? What do we mean by that? Do we mean, what was he worth as a, as a fellow member of the human race? Do we mean, what was she worth as an image bearer of Christ? Do we mean, uh, what, what was she worth to her family and the contribution that she made to the, to their lives? What was he worth in the, in, in, in his contribution to the community or what? Do we mean any of that stuff? No, we do not. In our culture, what you are worth is what you are worth financially. What is his bottom line? What is the, what is the net assets? that he has. That's what he's worth. And that is Judas's perspective. Do you see this? He looked at what Mary did and he could only put it in a financial category. And from his perspective, that was a waste of money. Who would do that? Why would you do that? And from a materialistic perspective, anything that is given to Jesus, given to God is an absolute waste. Was the perfume worth more or less after she poured it out? What happens to gifts that we give to God? 
In fact, we just got done taking an offering. Some of you uh, chose to participate in that. Let's just reenact that for a moment. The plate is coming. You have something that you are going to give. As you go to place it in the plate, when you let go of it, right? In my hand, it's worth something. When I let go of it, (laughs) and it lands in the basket, at that moment, what is its real worth? More or less than the second when you had it in your hand. And our Judas culture says the answer to that is very easy. It is worth now nothing to you. Now, the accountants and financial planners would be like, well, actually, Pastor Steve, you get a tax write-off for that. And so there is some retaining of value. Shut up. Okay, that's not what I'm getting at today. That's not what I'm getting at. From our culture's perspective, that now is a loss, right? Because a materialist needs monetary financial asset value in order to have self-worth. And so when I give something away to the missionary, when I give it away to the food pantry, when I give it away to the church, now that self-worth has been now... I'm not worth what I was before because I've lost what I've given. And so the materialist looks at it and says, now because of what I've given, I can't, I can't buy the things that I used to be able to buy. So that's a loss. Or I can't, uh, I, I can't look at my bank statement and, and get the same sense of self-worth because the number is smaller now. And for a materialist, that is like everything. That is Judas who is all the time putting value on things. Indeed, in days, he would put the price of Jesus' life at 30 pieces of silver. Was the perfume worth more or less after she poured it out? And to get at the biblical answer here, I want to survey a few of Jesus' teachings today. And this message is kind of like part B of last week's message. And uh, our first passage is Matthew chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn there. Matthew chapter 6. We're beginning, we're developing a little bit of a biblical theology here about worth and value. We look at verse 19. This is part of what uh, we call the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves to quote the Sermon on the Mount. Pastors, parishioners, philosophers, presidents, everybody quotes the Sermon on the Mount, often uh, wrongly. Let's try not to do that today. Here's what Jesus said. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, any third grader in our church, if we said, hey, give us the main points on what Jesus has just said there, would pretty much be able to get this. They would say, well, it looks to me like he is saying that there are treasures on earth 
and that what happens to them is that they lose value and that there are treasures in heaven and that what happens to them is that they have enduring or lasting value and that what Jesus is telling us to do here is to make sure that we've laid up treasure where it is lasting and it is eternal. And indeed, they would be right because we see here Jesus is, he has two kinds of treasure, two kinds of value. There is earthly value, earthly treasure, and then there is eternal value or eternal treasure. And the the, the earthly treasure has certain uh, qualities about it that are inescapable. He says that with earthly treasure, there is the threat of destruction by moth and rust and where a thief can always come in and take it. Now, we're talking about a culture that didn't have online banking and all the digital stuff financially that we have today. If you were wealthy in that culture, it was primarily expressed in land and in metal coinage, which had its value based upon how much uh, the, the value of that metal, the weight of that metal, as well as uh, clothing, which the rich would pile up as indication of how wealthy they were. James talks about this, where he says that you're piling up your, uh, you're piling up your, all of your garments, and they are a kind of indictment against you. So imagine then in this culture, you had a big bag of coinage, you had a lot of land, and you had a gigantic closet full of clothes. That meant that you were wealthy. And Jesus points out something about this kind of wealth. He says that moths can destroy it. What's he referring to? All of these garments. A moth can get in there, moths can get in there, and can ruin them. Now they're not worth anything. If you pulled out some kind of a dress or something like that out of your closet and insects got at it and it's all got holes in it, um, you know, what are you going to do with it? It's not worth anything anymore. Or how about metal coinage? That does not retain value because it rusts. And as it rusts, it's losing value. Or how about thieves who can break in and steal and take it? Now, we live in a different day, but the principles are the same, aren't they? We live in a day where values uh, go down. Anybody's house worth more today than it was like four or five years ago? Probably not. Anybody here with the same amount of investment that it's, it's worth more than it was when the stock market was up around 14.5? Probably not. I'm thinking this is a great time to point out the principle that uh, what goes up, easy come. Isn't it true? The earthly values and treasures that we have, they are all the time doing this, aren't they? Up and down, up and down, up and down. They are very precarious. And Jesus contrasts this then with eternal treasure, this laying up of eternal treasures in heaven. And what is he talking about here? Well, he is definitely talking about eternal life. There's no mistaking this. But the Bible talks at length about the reality that for those that are God's people, that there is eternal life, but there is also a second judgment that we will have, we each will stand before Christ, the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, and give an account for our life. 
And the measure by which we will be held accountable is the quality of our service and sacrifice to him. And at that judgment, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, that there will be some that will gain and there will be some that will have loss. And this is what Jesus is getting at here, is a, a kind of thinking and a kind of perspective on the things that I have in this life where I understand what is really treasure and what is true worth and value. Jesus and Judas, eternal, earthly, two different ways of looking at it. And then Jesus concludes by adding this, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. By the way, I want to give you some references if you're interested in that qualitative judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10, 1 Corinthians 3.12-15, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and 1 Timothy 6.19. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. A final reason... For laying up treasure in heaven, Jesus says, is that where our treasure is, our heart is. It's like, it's like a, two wings of a butterfly. Okay? Where my treasure goes, there goes my heart. They always go together. And so when I am laying up treasure on earth and I'm all about what I can get here and I'm kind of living for what's here, my heart is here. And yet the call of Christianity is this, that our hearts are not to be here, they are to be there. That we are aliens and strangers in this world, as Peter says. That our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so God's people have got to live in the tension between doing what we can here for God and the kingdom and good. But my heart is not here. My heart is there because that is my home. And what here's where money bridges that. When I am laying up treasure in heaven... Since my heart and my treasure are always together, I am by doing that, I am placing my heart and my affections on things to come, on the future life and the future world. And so this is why the challenge for us is we all have a little Judas in us, don't we? We all have this little Judas inside. and He's got a gigantic uh, calculator all the time calculating the value of things. The worth of things from a materialistic perspective, especially in a culture like ours, which is so totally materialistic and we're all the time awash in commercials and in movies and in media and in friends that we hang out with where all they care about is money. And all they're trying to do is accumulate in this life. And we hear this and we hear this. Are we influenced by it? You bet we are. And it calls us to live for the here and now. Now, I didn't tell the other services this, but I actually got a free ticket or two to the uh, Chicago Auto Show, which I'm going to this afternoon. Is this hypocrisy? It's not, because I'm going to stand up and preach this message at the auto show. You're going to see me on the news tonight in jail uh, <laughs> I've been like once before and uh, it is a call to live for now isn't it the glitz the glamour the sparkle all of that it's all around us we all have a little Judas in us and the challenge for the Christian is how do I kill the little Judas in me 
And how do I live according to worth as Jesus evaluates it and calls us to? And here is where what we do with our money is the clearest indication of which value system we are living by. Which one are you living by? Now, the second passage is uh, in Luke 12. You can turn there. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. The situation is that Jesus is uh, out and about. He is teaching. And there is this guy that comes up and shouts something at him and asks Jesus to do something for him. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this is a very familiar scenario. Anybody uh, had the, the fun and privilege of dealing with family when it comes to money? Isn't that fun? Money and family, family and money, we all get along. Especially when it comes to an inheritance and who's getting what and whether that's fair or not. Maybe you can relate to that. My family, my extended family kind of walked through some drama as it relates to this kind of thing. It's not pretty. And all kinds of bad stuff kind of bubbles out to the surface in that. And maybe you've seen that. So this is what's going on. Here's Jesus' response. Man, who made a judge, made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, so he turns from the guy to the crowd now, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I think this parable is particularly powerful in American Christian culture because this guy is essentially living the American dream, isn't he? I mean, most Americans dream of some kind of a windfall where suddenly in a moment they go from sort of being the average middle class American to suddenly having all of this wealth and all of this freedom and all the fun and all the rest. I mean, this is the, this is indeed the American dream. That's why people pray over their publishing clearinghouse as they, as they send that back in the mail or just, I, I would tithe on it. I would tithe on it. God, please. But these kind of things do happen. You know, you, you work, happen to work at a company where it gets bought out by IBM and suddenly there's all kinds of money. Or you happen to buy a little stock somewhere and it just goes through the roof. Or Uncle Louie dies and suddenly you have... A... That's what this guy was experiencing. He had a bumper crop. 
He was just a normal guy up to that point. All of a sudden, for whatever reason, that one year, he has so much grain, which in that culture was like money in the bank. He had so much grain, all of a sudden, he doesn't even have to work anymore. Now, the Bible nowhere condemns wealth or the accumulation of wealth. But it has a lot to say about loving it and what you do with it. And that's what we see here. His response to this bumper crop reveals the priorities of his heart, does it not? What is he not thinking about when he gets this? Is there a thought to himself, I wonder, what could I do to be a blessing to other people in my life? Hmm. What could I do to somehow give back to God who's been so generous to give this to me in the first place? What could I do to be a blessing for the Lord in some way? Is he got, is that even on his radar at all? No. Who is he thinking about? Himself. And so he thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll build larger barns and I can put all the grain in there and they'll have so much grain. I'm going to be able to just sit back. I don't even have to plant next year. I can just relax. I can eat what I want. I can drink what I want. I can take the rest of my life and I can sort of chill out and live off of all the excess of this one bumper crop. My life is going to be great from this point on. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Again, the American dream. And into that perspective enters a reality, into that Judas perspective enters a truth that is as true for us today as ever. God steps in and says, you fool, tonight your life will be accounted for. And then who's going to get all the things that you've accumulated? So shall it will be for those that are rich towards earth and not rich towards God. He says, fool. Death reveals the stupidity of his life. Friend, are you living stupid? Well, Pastor Steve, what do you mean by stupid? Are you living like this guy here for this world and for the accumulation of things in this world? And the getting of stuff in this world, and you have not spent any time, given anything, laid up any treasure in heaven. And if you died today, you would step into eternity with nothing. That is stupid living. That's the fool. Seems to me like every week almost, we have somebody that rich and famous that dies in our culture. And I often have a similar thought when I hear about somebody dying. And, and, and just to retrace even the last couple of weeks, this week, Gary Carter, Hall of Famer, baseball player, died. Last week, of course, Whitney Houston died. Last week, Steve Appleton, who you may not know, but was the president, CEO of uh, Micron Technology, probably billionaire, multiple billionaire plus, died in a plane crash. Etta James, alas, did you like that? (laughs) My love has come alone. My lonely days are over. 
And love is like a song. She's dead. Joe Paterno. Happens every week. Maybe this week you'll think about this point when they announce whoever is going to die this week. And I think about what must that moment be like for the materialist, the person who had it all in this life, when they, 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 they've only known luxury, they've lived in luxury and fame and all the comforts that come with that, and in a millisecond they leave this place in the lap of luxury and suddenly they're standing before God and they got nothing none of these things are with them all they have is them and what they have given to him what must that be like like think about Whitney Houston and I don't know Whitney's spiritual state and I'm not God's the judge and all the rest but can you imagine you're at the Beverly Hills was it the Hilton it's, got a, it's the Beverly Hills Hilton, all right? We have a Hilton in Maryville. <laughs> this is the Beverly Hills Hilton. I'm thinking this is a pretty nice place. You're in the lap of luxury. Everywhere she goes, people cheering for her. And in a moment, she leaves this world and stands before God. To be ushered into his presence and to be ushered into an eternal destiny that the Bible says there's only two, heaven and hell. And I wonder how many people, no doubt millions in eternity already, looking back at their life from the eternal perspective and saying, what a fool I have been. No doubt in hell, many people heard the name of Christ, had family members that exhorted them to give their life to Christ, to become a follower, to believe in him and his work on the cross, and they spurned it, or they said someday. But even in heaven, how many millions of Christians there are who, by the grace of God, saved? But like 1 Corinthians 3, as one through the flames, stepping into eternity without anything to show for it spiritually. How much regret there must be in eternity. And I say to you, I don't want you to be regretful. I don't want anybody here to step into eternity impoverished towards God. I want you rich. I want me rich towards heaven. Anybody here living stupid? Like Judas. Was the perfume worth more or less after it was poured out? Here's the third passage. Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has just shocked his disciples by saying that it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He says, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And in that culture, if you were rich, it kind of meant that, you know, God was for you. And so for him to say that, like, shocked them. And Peter says to them in, to, in reply, 
Verse 27, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, before you get too excited, uh, I think that applies only to the apostles. So before you're like, I'm going to rule and reign. Uh, No, you're not. (laughs) But the rest of this is for everyone. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, in this life, there are things, there is stuff. But what is the real worth of it? What is the real value of it if you don't get to keep it? But he says to Peter, what you give to me, not only do you get to keep it, laying up treasure in heaven, but I will give back to you a hundredfold. And we see in this the generosity of God, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. If, if God just sent his son and died on the cross for us, would we not just, just that alone? Would we, would it not be, he be worthy of us just going, it's all yours anyway and I'm all in. I'm all for you. You can have what you want. Here's the nard and everything else. If it was just that, certainly if we understand the work of Christ and God's love to us on the cross, that would be enough for any of us. But what we find in the economy of God is that he adds to this a promise regarding the future. That every sacrifice that we make, every gift that we give, every giving of ourselves that we give in his name, it will be rewarded. And not just one for one, like, hey, give it to me, I give it back to you. You give me a dollar, I'll give you a dollar in heaven or something like that. No. It's back plus, isn't it? Hundredfold, which I think is just him saying, listen... I am way more generous to you than you'll ever be to me. And friends, that's why we, we will never be able to outgive God. You can't. He is the generous God of heaven. He gave us his son and he promises to give us more and to lavish treasure upon us, eternal treasure. And you can debate what that is, but when you find out what it is, you're going to love it. You're going to want it. A reward from Christ himself to those who have given and served him. And so we see here then this contrast between Judas and Jesus, between the earthly and the eternal, two different ways of living and thinking. And what is pointed out here is this. The materialist says that when I, if I give to God, I, it's a loss to me. Like Judas, what have you done? Stop, 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 stop. Stop. Don't pour any more. It's all gone. 50 grand down the tube. What are you doing, Mary? It's a loss. But Jesus points out what? For the materialists, what do they actually get to keep? Zero, right? Because death is a separation from everything that we have. So the materialist is trying to keep, but in the end, they what? They lose. Jesus' perspective is this. 
in the giving of yourself and your time and your treasure, your talents and all the rest that you are. Every gift that you give to me, you get to keep for eternity. And so you see then the stupidity, the foolishness that God points out. What's foolish? Living for the now and what I can keep and losing it or the giving of what I have now and the eternal keeping of it. Which makes more sense to you? And this is so, this is way bigger than even we realize here today, I think. Eternity will show who has lived their life wisely. Are you one of them? You say, well, how can I know? I go back to what Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Perhaps the clearest indication of the, of the priorities of our heart and what we really love is what we do with the things that we have and where we invest them and where we give them. So let's go back to the question. Was the perfume worth more before it was poured or after? And getting the answer to that question right, I think, will determine whether you're a Mary or a Judas in your life. What do you think? I think the testimony of the Bible is that the moment it landed on Jesus' feet, it was worth infinitely more than $50,000. Way, way more. And that gift that Mary gave to this day is she is experiencing reward for her generosity to Christ. So that I, can you imagine if we had like a special phone here? Hey everyone, I got a phone to heaven. Please put Mary on the phone. And Mary gets on the phone. We're like, hey Mary, Bethel Church down here. We'll be seeing you soon. Um, we were wondering, you know that, that nard that you poured out? Oh yeah, I remember it very vividly. Yeah. It was quite expensive. Oh, my, yes. Uh, we're just kind of wondering, are, are, you, are you glad you did it now? Or do you sort of regret that? What do you think she would say? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? And if we really believe that, would it not transform not only the way that we look at our stuff, but what we do with it? to live our lives from the eternal perspective and to invest our lives for what matters in the end. And I would just like to have just a moment, pastor and congregation talk. You know, I've been here quite a long time. I hope that you know that I love you. I heart you. Thank you. Would the loving thing for a pastor to do would be to just sort of tell nice stories, make you feel good for today, send you out the door thinking what a nice, comfortable service that was. And for you to be facing the inevitable death that's coming to you unprepared for eternity. Or is it the loving thing for me to do to challenge you to live for eternity? 
and to not simply pay lip service to it, which in a church service like this, it's easy to do. We all amen. Oh, yeah. We want to be Mary, not Judas. Amen. And then to go out into this culture in this world and to live like every other materialist around us. What will it be for you? Are you rich towards God or not? I had one quote from John Piper I wanted to share. He says, the evidence that many of our people are not rich toward God is how little they give and how much they own. Let me say that again. The evidence that many of our people are not rich toward God is how little they give and how much they own. And in American Christianity, you know, this message doesn't quite feel the same in, in, in Sudan or an impoverished part of India. It doesn't feel the same. We're the richest Christians in the history of the world. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. We have the greatest opportunity to use the resources that God has given us for things that matter in the end. And I want you to be rich there, my friend. I don't want anybody coming up to me saying, why didn't you tell me? I would have lived so differently. I'm going to say, I told you. You didn't listen. And here I think is where Mary's example is so helpful. What's the issue? The issue is the heart. It's always the heart. When we have love here for Christ, it translates into extravagant generosity for his people, for his work all over, many opportunities. But that's the key, is to love him. So was it worth more before or after? It was worth infinitely more after. Nothing we ever give to God is a waste, ever. All of it is a treasure to him. And in the end, it is an eternal treasure to us as well. I pray that we believe that today and that it transforms the way that we live. Now, right now, we're just going to have a quiet moment here of meditation. I'm going to ask you just to, it might be helpful to physically bow your head, pray to God, ask this question. If I was to die today, would I be rich towards heaven? And if not, God, what would you have me do about that? And I can only believe that good would come of a question like that. So Dustin's going to play quietly. When the music changes, that'll be the signal that our service is done. And we have the opportunity to go out then and uh, to deny the Jesus or the Judas perspective and to, and to live for the Jesus one. God's blessings on you.